Hello and a very warm welcome to the High Speed Training podcast in which we look at supporting children with special educational needs. This podcast has been developed for professionals working with children. It will help you provide high quality and inclusive support within your settings. My name is Richard Anderson and I'm Head of Learning and Development at High Speed Training. I'm your host for today and in this podcast we'll be talking to Anita Devi and Mike Fleeton. Anita is CEO and founder of Team ADL and 365 Send as well as being an author, former SENCO, and local authority SEND advisory teacher. Anita has provided us with guidance and expert knowledge for our most recent course, SEND in the Classroom. And Mike is director and lead training at Thinking Classroom, a learning design consultant, executive coach, and author of many books on pedagogy, whilst working with high-speed training on a number of our education and leadership courses. Anita, Mike, a huge thank you for joining me today. And at this stage, we'd like to thank you both for all your support and work on our Send in the Classroom course. So the theme of this podcast came from feedback from our learners. They wanted a comprehensive overview of Send filled with strategies they can use to support students in their classrooms. And that's why we put Send in the Classroom together. We'll chat through some strategies you can use to support children and young people so that we hope you can reflect on your current practice and by the end, have a better idea on how to support children with Send. I'd like to start by talking about how SEND is prioritised in schools. And Anita, if I may come to you first, do you think SEND is prioritised enough in today's education? Hello, Richard. Thank you very much for having me today. Um, I, I do think it is prioritised. I think um, there's a genuine heart for people to support children and young people with SEND. I think the challenge is how. And so I think what Send in the Classroom has done successfully is demystify some of those questions around, well, yes, we want to help children, but how do we go about it? What knowledge do we have? What skills do we have? What questions do we need to ask? And I think Send has become very complex over time. And what we, we need to do is kind of almost take it back to foundational aspects and let's go back to the core, you know, and give and equip people with those basic understanding, knowledge and skills so that they can apply it to their context. Thanks, Anita. And Mike, welcome. How often do you go into schools and find that SEND is a priority? Uh, hi, Richard. Hi, Anita. Thanks again very much for having me. Yeah, I mean, when I go into schools, I find that, yeah, it is a priority. But the challenge for most people I work with is that there's many other priorities there as well. And it's kind of jostling for, for attention. So it's, it's never not on the radar, but it's a matter of how people can give it the attention it deserves amongst all the other things that are kind of clamouring for attention. That, that's the kind of view I see. Great. Thank you. Anita, I've heard the term, every teacher is a teacher of SEND. What does this statement mean to you? So the statement actually comes from the SEND code of practice, um, which, as you know, is one of the statutory instruments that we use to implement legislation around SEND. I'm not, if I'm honest, I'm not very keen on the term. And, and here's why. Um, I think every teacher is a teacher of every child. And so I think it's partially true, but not fully true. And I think every teacher has a commitment to teach the children in front of them. So every teacher needs to think about how inclusive they are. And if we come across a child for whatever reason, whether that's special needs or any other need that they have, that they're unable to access the curriculum, the teacher has a professional responsibility to find ways to ensure that they do access the curriculum and make progress. 
So I'd like to see us, if I'm honest, go beyond just saying every teacher is a teacher of SEND to every teacher is a teacher of all children. And some of them, yes, will be SEND. Thanks, Anita. And Mike, I, I saw you nodding along um, to that. Is that something that you you agree with and, and you align to? Absolutely. It's, again, the, the challenge of priorities and it's this, this, this trick of the mind really to see every child as a priority simultaneously but also in you know in their uniqueness and their diversity that's the richness of the craft of teaching but it's also the, the main challenge of it so yeah, I, I totally agree with that that way of looking at at learning great and Anita what are the most common kinds of challenges you see teachers facing when they try to meet the needs of children with SEND so there's there's, there's a couple of tensions in the system um Labels are an access to resources. And so there is a heavy reliance on labeling, but that label in itself doesn't actually achieve anything. It doesn't actually change what should be happening. And so there's a lack of knowledge and leadership sometimes around, yes, this child has this need, but the secondary conversation, which is the most important, what does this mean in the classroom? What do you know, what do you need to do that's gonna be different that will support this child. So I think there's a there's a need for deeper conversations within schools, but also to train up teachers. And there is a lot more work happening at the early career teacher stage. Some would argue maybe not enough. I think that, that again, that's a tension, how much do you put in? What I say to trainee teachers and early career teachers is, you know, your understanding of SEND is a lifelong journey. It's throughout your career and you have to be open to continuously learn new things and different things to support the needs. So I think, you know, Mike's already picked up that there are lots of priorities and that then becomes the bigger thing. But fundamentally, if we can go back to just thinking around what does it mean in the classroom? You know, if our if our passion is to enable children to learn as teachers and that's what we're there for, then as soon as we come up across a barrier to that or something that hinders that, we have a responsibility again to start asking the right questions. And do you feel that one of the, the issues for, for teachers when working with the needs of children with SEND is that it's about knowing what strategies they are, but also not simply knowing what the strategies are, but also how and when to use them? Absolutely. And the Send in the Classroom course by High Speed Training is based around the four areas of need. And we intentionally designed it like that instead of being around dyslexia or autism or, you know, because actually those form the fundamentals and you often get overlap. So instead of, you know, as the code says, um, I think it's page 97, that instead of putting children in a box about the label, it's about saying, yes, we've made an identification what do we do next? What's the next step? And I think that's where the strategies come in because the strategies are that next step. Um, and it's that kind of, well, we'll try this, not randomly, I mean, but, you know, having some considered thought about it and then actually seeing the impact of that. If it's worked, what, what's the next step after that? Or if it's not working, what does that tell us? Great. And also, is it about having an effective way to use support, for example, with teaching assistants to support learning for, for children with SEND? For sure. 
So the leadership team have a responsibility to have clear strategy around how they deploy their support staff, their teaching assistants, and teachers in the classroom have a responsibility to direct them. And I think, again, if you get those two things working well, the teaching assistants can be effective within the classroom, but they are required to be directed. So it comes back to teacher responsibility, but also leadership responsibility. And it's, you know, if everyone worked together on this, then actually we would have much more fruitful conversations. I think too often it's left to just one person, the Senko. And I think this is where Send in the Classroom makes it accessible for all staff. Because it's about saying, actually, it's not just the Senko. Everyone has a responsibility. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Mike, if I may come to you, um, what advice would you give to a classroom teacher who is struggling to meet the needs of children with SEND? That, that's a really interesting question. And I'd probably link it back to what you, you said earlier, Anita, around um, barriers and, and labels. Um, but bef before that, the kind of uh, two pieces of advice I'd give are things that are actually difficult to do in the cut and thrust of, you know, a day-to-day -day lesson or a day-to-day -day teaching experience for, for, for teachers and children. It's to actually step back. So if you are struggling to meet the needs of a child with SEND in the classroom, just step back and observe first, because it could be easy to get caught in that I'm not meeting the needs. What can I do? What can I do? So step back physically in the classroom. Quite often I say that when I'm, you know, coaching teachers, just stand in the corner and tell me what you can see. What are you hearing? So it's to observe, to see, um, and then to build on something that hopefully you've established already, which is that the, the quality relationship, a quality learning relationship with not only that child, but with the classrooms. So you've got these two things, the relationship which you can build on and the observation of what's happening. And then, I mean, Anita, I'd be fascinated to, to hear what you think about this. But the idea is to prevent yourself putting a label there first and to just to see the child as one of your children with a unique and diverse need and to think about that and how you can meet their needs and if it's beyond your skill set at the moment to think well where can I get the advice or the information to, to meet this need um, I think labels potentially although you said Anita can become routes to support routes to funding potentially if you use them first they can become limits because your biases about what a child with this diagnosis can do or can't do so the the, the summary of the advice is to observe within the context of a strong relationship, but without bias or expectation of what that child can or can't do. But uh, I'm just kind of the generalist. So, you know, Anita, I'd love to hear what you, you kind of think about that. You're spot on, Mike. But and that's where, you know, using the generalist skills that we have and applying them to send is what we need. It's not always about being the specialist. You know, it's using good practice. And I would totally agree with you. When um, the SEND reforms were going through their process between 2011 and uh, 2018, when we saw the final cycle completed, someone asked me, um, how would I describe the reforms in one word? And my one word was relationships. It is all about relationships. You know, the heart of good teaching is that relationship between the teacher and the child. And we know from research, from data, that when that relationship, and also our own anecdotal experiences, where do we learn most is when we've had a good relationship with someone who's teaching us. So relationships are really key. And what makes a good relationship is knowing the child, knowing what they like, what makes them tick, how they work, and actually using that to, to really craft lessons 
that enable them to keep making progress. And I'm really pleased that Mike talked about observation. Um, I think, Richard, you mentioned earlier that I was an SEN advisory teacher. And one of my um, roles in that was to go into schools and observe children with no bias, as Mike says, but actually to look at some of the behaviours and particularly the micro behaviours. Because actually, if you start to join some of the dots around what we're seeing, what environment, what's triggering, what's the actual outcome of that, you begin to understand the child beyond the label. And that is much more significant. So, yeah, totally agree that, you know, and I think, you know, again, we often think of observations as just in the classroom. I would probably extend that mic and say sometimes those observations need to be in unstructured time. So the playgrounds, lunch times, you know. Children are always giving off clues. And one of the things I say to teachers is children know what they need. Sometimes they just don't know how to express it. And if we can give them the space and the room to kind of say, actually, this is what would help me be a better learner. That's a great start for building rapport, but also hearing their voice in it. Thank you, Anita. Thank you, Mark. I think People listening will find that really, really practical and also and also quite heartening in terms of their day-to-day -day work. So, so thank you for that. Um, we focused a bit on education so far. Um, Anita, have you got any advice for our listeners who might may not be working necessarily in a school setting, but but work, for example, in a school activity club or sports clubs? Is it a case of the similar principles that you've talked about with education? For sure. So I've worked with a number of um, groups and churches as well and to encourage that inclusion around just their lives. Um, because what we were finding is that many would say, well, in school, there are lots of things put in place and strategies. And then yet when the child, their child goes to a social club or an after school club or a out of, you know, a community event, there was nothing in place. And inclusion is everyone's responsibility. And I think this is why I go back to Richard um, saying this idea about, you know, every teacher is a teacher of send. I think if we recognise it's everyone's responsibility, then actually we all have a duty of care. So I would say that the although, it's, you know, the course is called Send in the Classrooms, Send in the Classroom, the way it's been structured around the four areas of need, someone who is running a school activity club or a sports club could still easily access the materials and use it for their own situation. Because the classroom is basically what? A learning environment. So if you are in a place where there is some form of learning that is happening, and learning happens how? Through interaction. So if there's any form of learning, any form of interaction, and you have a passion for diversity, and you are genuine about engaging and embracing children with different needs, then yeah, I would say, learn find out you may not have all the answers you may not be experts in teaching but it starts somewhere thank you um anita could you tell our listeners about a time when you were a classroom teacher and, and had some difficulties with working with children with send and, and what advice would you give yourself now and, and mike i'll i will spoiler that by saying i will come to you for the same question after anita so my why as a teacher has always been about the joy of learning. I, I, I think it's that would for me is the entitlement of all children, all adults. <clears throat> there is something that happens when you learn. You actually shift into a new place, either in your mind, in your understanding, you make a new connection and it's that newness that feeds us. And so for me, 
when I watched children in the classroom um, and they weren't experiencing that joy of learning, for me it was about actually what's hindering that and what can I do? So <clears throat> over the years, I've, I've had the privilege to meet with a number of children who haven't been accessing the learning. And what advice would I give? Um, I mean, it's so, you know, every child has a very specific story and I think it's the narratives that they bring. Um, but it can be simple things from like planning. So I had a child with autism in my class and I think this is when I was teaching primary middle school. Um, and, the, you know, that term two, we had to take them, so the spring term for swimming. And so I used term one to train them in dressing and undressing because that was a key skill they needed to be able to access the curriculum in term two. Um, and you know, we got it down to three minutes, whereas previously at home, it was taking one and a half hours every morning. So that strategy then was used at home and it saved so much conflict in the house every morning for the family. When I was in secondary, um, often you'd get children who would walk in who'd been put on report card because of behaviour. Now, their behaviour was the manifestation of something else going on. And I had a ground rule kind of as they walked in, I would sign off their report card. Um, so and so has had a fantastic lesson. And the children would all look at me and say, but we don't know yet. And I'd say, well, you're not going to make me want to change it, are you? And without exception, they all behaved in my lesson because I'd removed the anxiety. So I think sometimes we have other systems that can actually play a bit of a, a challenge on that. My advice for me now, I think during my teacher training years and early career teaching, I, you know, I would have loved to have the opportunities I have that are there for teachers now to learn about SEND. I had to go and find it out myself. I had to go and, you know, develop my own interest. I think now there is a genuine central agenda that teachers should know about this and everyone has the opportunity. So I think that for me would be, you know, that would be lovely to kind of time travel back and, you know, start my career earlier in SEND, if you like, you know, not having to go through all that. But I guess that early career also kind of gave me that understanding, that really deep understanding around teaching and learning. And I think that is also important, having a real, you know, as a teacher, you know, what does pedagogy mean to you? What does good teaching mean to you? What does a learning environment mean to you? So all of those things matter before you can move on to SEND. I'm not sure I answered your question, but... <laughs> you did, and I think everyone will find that incredibly insightful, and, and thank you for sharing that experience with us. Um, Mike, if I could ask the same of you, um, you know, wh what advice would you give yourself now? I mean, that's interesting hearing Anita you say about uh, having to develop um, your own agenda around this and, and your own learning around it without giving away, you know, ages or here or when we started teaching. Um, I, I certainly remember several instances where because of my um, newness to the profession, I didn't have the, the, the knowledge or experience to know or to recognise what I now look back and see was a distinct need you know back in the good old days in old money when i was an nqt like all these ecfs now haven't we but when i was an nqt i remember in, in that year wrestling with some needs that i couldn't understand and although there's a very very effective uh, warm and loving um, senko in in the school um you know a couple of boys spring to mind who who couldn't read and you know i i was kind of asking the question um 
what is it that, that they can't do? What is it about them? And, and this is something I find when I'm working with teachers that the number of times they refer to them versus the number of times they refer to themselves. So you, you talk about a classroom and they do this, they do that versus I do this, I do that. When the focus is on what I could do differently, that's the advice I'd give to myself now is not what should they do differently, but what can I do differently to help them meet their needs? I mean, it was interesting that a couple of lads, you know, had uh, di uh, diagnosed with dyslexic tendencies and, you know, the universe delivered up to me quite soon afterwards, two of my own children, one with severe dyslexia and one with mild dyslexia. So that's that's the universe saying there, there's your learning experience, Mike. But um, very much the struggles for me were not seeing it or knowing it and having to develop my own gender. And the advice is to shift the thinking to what can I do rather rather than what can't they do? I hope that answers the question. Again, really well answered, Mike. Don't worry. Um, again, I, thank you so much for that. I think it's it's really great for the listeners to understand, you know, these personal experiences and how how you can evaluate what you do. So, so really appreciate those answers. If I could just ask now, Anita, what does inclusive practice mean to you? Do you know what, Richard? This is a really tough question, and and it's the reason it's tough is that the concept of inclusion is um, very problematic because you need specialists and when the minute you talk about specialists who ascend or who might know about autism and that you're then challenging that whole inclusion non-inclusion do you know what I mean um, but I think so for me I start with where I am as a teacher and as a teacher I actually think I'm a time traveler so I use the past in the present to create a better future that's how I've always seen teaching that, you know, my role is to connect. So, you know, we're basing it on the past, but it's in today and it, we've got to always have our mind on where we're headed. And that's, so as we take these young people on that journey, we've got to think about their future, not what we think it should be, not what we think it ought to be, because actually we don't know what the future will hold. So if we go back to the, the fundamentals of what are the core things that we do need young people to, to learn to master to be confident in then we can be secure that we have prepared them for whatever the future will hold for them and so you know i think when we think of inclusion sometimes there is a view that it's a fluffy ideal of everyone just getting on and everyone will be happy and everyone will agree with everyone i would disagree i think if you think about inclusion the flip side of inclusion is diversity Diversity has to be part of that conversation. And if you've got a diverse community, the chances are there will be conflict. Now, conflict's not a bad thing because actually conflict brings the best out. I've learned more from people who've had different opinions from me than people who agree with me. And so if we can create, create a kind of mindset where actually, again, open to learning, open to learning different things and saying, well, actually, let's hear from a different perspective. Let's understand a different perspective. Don't always agree with it, but I will listen. And so it comes back to, you know, Mike talked about observing. I think another caveat is listening, really listening to where people's hearts are, what's their view on the world, and what are they adding to where I'm at? So where would this all start? Your core values, you know? Inclusion is your core values. And I think each one of us as teachers, professionals, in any field, we need to go back to what is it we really value 
and does that manifest or reflect in the way we behave? And we get unresolved conflict when there is dissonance kind of between what, we've, what we place a value on and what we're doing. And there'll be moments like that. We're a human, we'll all mess up. But I think if we can, you know, constantly reflect. So what would I say would improve inclusive practice? Two things. Ask the right questions. Okay, it's not the the better, well actually maybe it's ask the better question rather than the right question because there's no right or wrong here. Ask the better questions and listen more than you talk. I think this, Mike, you. I was going to say Mike, is that something that resonates with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean what really resonates is, is uh I need to say about, you know, the, the potential creativity or ideas that come out of conflict. I mean, a phrase that springs to mind is, you know, those with whom you disagree the most can be your greatest teachers. Um, not necessarily that you should seek them out relentlessly, but there's a huge opportunity when someone thinks something differently to you. Um, and, and if they are able to engage with you in a conversation about the differences, something new and exciting can, can emerge from that. I mean, I, my working schools, I'm very much about not quick fixes, but kind of marginal gains. So small, achievable things that, that leaders and teachers can do or feel they can do um, quickly that have um, a noticeable impact reasonably soon. Um, so in terms of the, you know, in inclusive practice and what practitioners can do, I mean, Anissa, you've already said a, a few ideas there. I mean, I'm just curious that is there kind of one thing you, you would want to say to um, a teacher to, to, to improve their idea of inclusion or their way they see it or, or what they actually do in the class? Like a kind of a nugget or a, a gem for them? I think, yeah, I, th I think one of the things I'm finding that, you know, when I go in and work with either practitioners or schools, what, what value I bring is helping them to ask the better questions. And I think when we, we're not good at asking questions, we always want answers because actually if we've got a question hanging, it feels uncomfortable. And I think my views on inclusion have refined and refined because I've left questions hanging and pursued them. And I think, you know, we, we live in a bit of a microwave community, don't we, society, where everything has to be done quickly and fast. And actually there is a, there is, there is a beauty in actually maturing in this and letting it almost yourself marinate in the concept of what is you know what does inclusion mean to me what does that look like in my classroom and I I taught early years I taught primary and I taught secondary and I've taught up to postgrad so in each of those phases I've had to think about what does inclusion really mean and look like and even overseas um, if I could share just Richard a, a quick example say from Africa you know when <clears throat> when I took out teams to Africa to train up teachers and leaders we could have taken a lot of resources from England and said, this is what we do in England. And But actually I sat and thought, is this inclusion? Because what we're doing is we're imposing our view on another community. And so we looked at, well, actually, what are the skills we wanted to teach? So, for example, one of the skills that we wanted to develop was around fine motor skills and gross motor skills. The very first day I went into one of the local shops in Africa and bought things like uh, a man shirt on a hanger. And, and we put that up in the classroom and the children learnt to develop their fine motor skills by doing the buttons up and down for a couple of minutes each day. It solved the situation about them developing their fine motor skills, but it was 
positioned in the context of their community and their resources, not something we had imported from England. So we were going down to the, the fundamentals of what is it we want to achieve, but within that broader context of where are they at? And it's those two things coming together that I think makes a difference. I think that's really fascinating to hear again from your own personal experiences on, on, on what you've done. So, so thank you for that. I'm going to sort of have a final question for you both, really. And it's a, it's a bit of a wishful one in terms of if you could wave a magic wand at Send Provision, what would you do? Anita, if I come to you first. Maybe not the magic wand, because a magic wand sometimes gives the impression that it's not achievable. I'd like to set a vision, actually, and I think a vision's achievable if everyone plays their part. One of the reasons I um, was really excited to get involved in Send in the Classroom is because actually with, as I took got involved, I had this vision that the course would be so accessible for all teachers across the country, but also overseas in some ways as well. So if we think about 22,000 settings in England, um, and obviously some you know, range from having 60 pupils to 2,500 pupils, quite a range in size, but we've got a phenomenal workforce. And if 50% of that workforce was to take up and actually learn about the four areas of needs, learn what this means in terms of strategies, what difference would that make in the classroom? So I'm not aiming at 50%, you know, I'd want it higher. But that would be a, a great vision in shifting, you know, the, the level of consciousness around SEND from just being about this is a priority for us, going back to your first question, but we also know how something to do with it, know how to do it, and we have the strategies. So I want to share that vision. How can we enable and empower our workforce? Everyone has a responsibility. That's that's a really great answer and thank you Anita and Mike um, I, I might say vision now instead of magic wand but if you had uh, a vision for send provision or, or a magic wand what would you do? Uh, good question with my with my visionary magic wand um, <laughs> I, I think two things one would be uh, more kind of elusive um, ethereal which is um, Anita you, you know you described that, that anecdote of how you used your kind of the craft of teaching to meet a need but within the context but something that was sensitive to the context you're in the kind of thing I'd, I'd wish for people is is to think or to feel free to think like that to have permission to think like that and time to think like that to be able to design and create the learning that's needed in that context so a little bit of bit, bit of freedom and and the other one is is kind of more pragmatic really and I'm fortunate to to work and in, in some what I call outlier provisions, and that, that's not a pejorative term at all. I, I work to support um, um, home tuition, hospital trusts who have an education provision, um, VI, visually impaired provisions as well. So some very specialist schools. Um, and what I find there, um, out of you know necessity, the practice there has to be effective. It has to be the best. You can't photocopy 30 worksheets. Um, in those kind of provisions and the kind of thinking that has to go on in the very specialist provisions really develops pedagogy really challenges people to think about teaching and learning means now my pragmatic hope magical vision here would be that um, there's more outreach from the specialist provisions just in terms of pure pedagogy to more mainstream so in in this situation where we have to meet diverse needs there's no getting away from it 
here's how we think about it. Here's how we meet the need. And then for that to be offered to mainstream provisions as, as a CPD, here's how to think about matching the skill of teaching, the craft of teaching to the diverse needs of learners. Yeah, that's what I'd, that's what I'd wave with my visionary wand. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, Anita, a huge thank you for your time today and for sharing great advice and also some some really insightful personal experiences which i you know i think have been a, a huge help for people listening we hope everyone listening has found this practical has given you some practical strategies for your own workplace if you are keen to learn more about send then we do have a whole host of free resources to support you on this topic from quizzes to articles which you can find on our hub and of course if you really want to deep dive into this topic further we have our latest Send in the Classroom course, which contains all the latest guidance and strategies. Thanks so much for listening and goodbye.